this morning. So the, the challenge here, the, the, the breakthrough Paul ha has had that he's sharing with them is he's found a way to find contentment in whatever circumstance he's in, to, to be at a place where he looks at his situation in life and says, I can be happy here, I can be at peace here, I can be at rest in this circumstance, regardless of the ups and downs of it. And I think one of the ironies of modern life, one of the things about especially modern American life, is contentment is hard to achieve, because the, the unofficial religion of America today is consumerism. And consumerism is essentially that doctrine Hello. You there? Okay. All right. We are back. Amatai Zole writes, in the crisis of American consumerism, consumerism, he says, consumerism is the obsession with acquisition that's become the organizing principle of American life. It's a culture in which the urge to consume dominates the psychology of citizens, and so people will do anything to acquire the means to consume, and even buy things beyond their means and think nothing of running up debt just for the sake of consuming more. 
So that's, that's the America that we all live in. I think you're all familiar with that at some level or another. And, and I think it's an, an easy whipping boy to say that, that uh, you know, American consumerism is this, this unique problem that, that is part of our age. But it's, and it is a modern problem, but it's not only a modern Who is content? Then he followed that up by saying, who is content? Absolutely nobody. <laughs> and so that was Ben Franklin's analysis based on the limited options of consumption that they had 250 years ago. And, and actually, 100 years before Benjamin Franklin, there was a, an English preacher named Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a, a famous speaker in his day. And he was writing, you know, when back when Manhattan was still mostly farmland and woodland. And he, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Even back in 1650, he thought Christian contentment as described in the Bible is something that's, that is rare, so rare that it's almost like a jewel because most of us don't have it most of the time. So it's not that the struggle for contentment is something that we've invented. It's just that, like most things, it was invented somewhere else but we Americans in this age have perfected it and brought it to a new level. Probably the biggest evidence of this is thousands and thousands of years ago, Moses wrote a top 10 list of the top 10 most important commands. And you know from, some of you remember David Letterman, right? The 20 years David But he used to have a ten, top 10 list. And always the 10th thing in the top 10 list was the most important thing, remember? Whenever you make a list of the top 10 things, you'd save the most important one for the last. And you know what the last one in Moses' list is? It's this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. See, even back in the ancient Near East, coveting was an issue. And I, and I, I'm just trying to visualize that this week. I'm like... You know, you're, you're looking at your neighbor and you're like, that's a mighty nice ox you got there. <laughs> I think it's time for an upgrade. But I, I guess that was an issue for Moses and his people. And so, so this is the challenge of, uh, for a lot of us. But it points to the fact that discontent is not a matter of our circumstances. It's not a matter of how much money we have in the bank or how much stuff we have. Discontent is really... At its essence, it's a matter of the heart. And it's our heart wants what it wants, and our heart sets its, sets its mind on all these things. And we, we try to solve our issues of identity, our issues of unhappiness, our issues of, of, uh, of anxiety, and everything else that we struggle with just by buying more stuff. But Paul's testimony is that he has learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. He knows how to be content when he's well-fed and when he's hungry. He knows how to be content when he's living in plenty and when he's living in want. He can do all of this through Christ who gives me strength. And you know, what Paul is saying is that, that there's a challenge on both ends. It's, it's hard to be content when you're struggling to put food on the table, when you're not sure if you're going to be able to pay your rent this month, when your car breaks down and you're not sure if you're going to be able to figure out how to repair it. But it's also hard to be content at the other end of the spectrum. 
you know, the, the, there's a devastating grind that a lot of people right, right in our midst are, are struggling with, the grind of food insecurity, the grind of housing insecurity, the grind of worrying about how, how you're going to make your ends meet this, this month and just kind of the nonstop hustle of, of piecing together what you can to make things work. And Paul knew about that. He says, I know what it is to be in hungry. I know what it is to be in want. But uh, the interesting thing is that the Bible says that there's actually an there's a spiritual advantage when we find ourselves in that, this place. And this is not to depreciate it and not, not to dismiss the reality of the grind and the reality of the stress, but there's an advantage that when, if it moves us to call on God, God will hear us. Psalm 34 says, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. That God hears the cry of the poor. And even when nobody else is returning your calls because you're too broke, you're too broken, God himself will hear your cry. In fact, Jesus says there's, there, there's an advantage, there's a spiritual advantage to being materially disadvantaged. This is really remarkable in Luke chapter 6. You know, some people try to pretend it's not there, but this is what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when you hunger now, for you will be filled. And you might be tempted to spiritualize that in a way, but then, then uh, Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your consolation. And woe to you who are full, for you will ultimately be hungry. What Jesus is saying is there's, there's a transcendent blessing, there's a hope and a promise that we can discover, that, that we can only discover maybe when we recognize our poverty, when we're feeling our poverty, when we find ourselves in those places where the ends are not meeting and we call out to God for his grace and his help. So, so there, that, that's one path to contentment even in the midst of difficulty. But another thing to keep in mind is that while being poor is absolutely miserable, being rich does not solve your problems. Because the irony, and this is, this is what we've learned in American life, is that no matter how much you get, you always need more. I had a, heard, heard a pastor was talking to his son. His son was like 14 years old. And his son, son asked him, Dad, if I could make $100,000, would that be a lot of money? And the father thought for a moment and says, well, it is until you actually make it. If you ever notice whatever you make, it's like, well, if I could just double this, then that would be enough. And the bar keeps moving. Michael Lewis wrote a book called Liar's Poker where he gives a testimony of his first couple years as a Wall Street trader. And he talks about the first time bonuses were, were announced. And he had his hopes up because he felt like his group had done really well and he had performed really well and he was, had high expectations and heard these legends of these massive bonuses. And he was ready for it. And then he was really disappointed because he was still junior and he just didn't get what he thought he deserved. So he's complaining about that to one of his friends who had been there a little bit longer than he had. And his friend said to him, you know, no one gets rich in this business. We just reach higher and higher levels of relative poverty. And that's kind of the American situation. None of us are actually getting rich. We're just reaching higher and higher levels of relative poverty. 
And so the secret or the challenge, the unmanageable challenge for both rich and poor alike is to find the miracle of contentment. Paul says, here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not a psychological trick. This is not just a, a money management trick. It's about learning to appropriate and live in light of our faith in God through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, I think is an important verse in this regard. It says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So what Paul is saying here is there's different kinds of rich. There's different kinds of wealth. And Jesus is a model because though he was rich when he was in heaven, he became poor when he became one of us. And through that in some supernatural way, in some transcendent way that, that's hard to understand but happens by faith, if you believe in him, you, through his poverty, become rich. And that's not obviously measured by the, your bank account or by the car in your driveway or, or your address or the clothes you wear. It's something more. It's something transcendent to that. And you know, I, I believe that when we're feeling our discontent, whether it's the discontent of living in plenty or the discontent of living in want, it's an opportunity to drill down deep to discover the source of real riches. Because really, what Paul is saying here is there's no amount of money that's going to satisfy your soul. You know, if you could double your, your salary tomorrow, then a year from tomorrow, you would have adjusted to that and you'd need your salary doubled again. But there is a spiritual dynamic that can happen through Christ who strengthens us. And that's ultimately what we've got to seek, regardless of where we're at in the chain. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. This is not something that money can buy. This is something that the Holy Spirit does in us. This is something we get by faith and by hope. And when we're struggling in contentment, it's a sign for all of us and a reminder of all of us that our faith isn't as deep and isn't as profound as God wants it to be in our lives. And so, so this is the essence of the act of faith. You know, the the Bible says, and Jesus says in a lot of places, that God's greatest competitor in our life, God's greatest competitor for our hearts, and God's greatest competitor for our desires, and God's greatest competitor for our devotion is money. And so our struggles with this are an opportunity to, to develop our faith and reframe our faith in God. But let me give you a few practical things to think about that can help you help you with this, perhaps. One is to refocus who we look at and who we pay attention to. You know, one thing about our world, and this is about the way things are marketed, about li living in America today, is, is the gaudy, gaudy wealth tends to capture our attention, whether it's driving through a fancy neighborhood and you're like, boy, I wonder what it would be like to live in one of these great homes or to be able to afford to live in this neighborhood or, or uh, 
seeing someone come up, pull up next to you at a stop sign and they're driving a really fancy car and you're like, boy, wouldn't it be great to be able to have a fancy car like that? There's always someone richer for us to envy. There's always someone richer for us to focus on. And, and usually what we normally do, our eyes are attracted, and our minds are attracted to the wealth that's around us and that's what we're always thinking about. I remember when my oldest child was in high school, some very misguided parents decided to buy their kid a brand new BMW on their 17th birthday. And my daughter comes home, because this is of course the talk of the high school, so-and-so's parents bought him a, BMW, a brand new BMW, they brought it to school today, isn't this crazy, this school is crazy, this world is, you know. Every, everyone's, everyone's talking about this, I'm just thinking these parents are wrecking that kid, but that, that was my opinion. But, but the thing is, everybody focused on that. Nobody notices the fact that there's dozens of kids in this high school whose parents can't even afford to get them driver's licenses, let alone buy them cars, and they're just, just quietly riding the school bus to school and, and walking into school, and, and nobody notices them. Because you notice the one kid in the school who's got a BMW. You don't notice all the kids who are just, just barely getting by, whose parents can, can barely keep things together. And so, you know, one of the challenges for us, and I think one of the ways as in our, in our world we can find contentment is if we deliberately refocus ourselves and notice people who nobody notices. I mean, some of you are eager for the sermon to be over so you can get to brunch, right? You know who you are. I won't, I won't point you out. But... Uh, and, you know, sometimes you go to brunch and you look around and you're like, look at all these fabulous people who are brunching here. And, and I, I wonder if they think I'm as fabulous as they are. But how about thinking for a moment or noticing the busboy at your brunch spot? You know, he's there right now and he's, he's getting the salad prepped. He's getting the desserts prepped. He's, he's filling the salt shakers and, and filling the ketchup bottles and, and putting all the condiments out and getting the table set. And and working hard to do all that for, for minimum wage. I mean, how about noticing those people rather than just noticing the fabulous people all around us? You know, you go to the office, and I, I think some of us, you, you go to the office and you're very conscious of the fact that your boss makes approximately 2x of what you make, and your boss's boss makes 4x of what you make. And you're like, boy, wouldn't it be great if one day I get to their position, if I can, if I can have that kind of prosperity, but what about Noticing the people who come through when you have to work late, who are vacuuming, who are emptying the trash, who make less in a day than you make in an hour. And what about recognizing them and thinking about their life and, and thinking about things from their perspective? See, wealth, gaudy wealth and consumption tends to grab our attention everywhere we go. But what about having your attention grabbed by people who are working hard, people who are decent, people who are struggling, and people who are in need, and letting your focus go to them. And if, if you do, one of the benefits of that is you'll find it a little bit easier to be content, even in the face of whatever limits you have and whatever wants you carry in your life. Another thing, so, so one thing practical you can do is to refocus your attention. Another practical thing you can do is to practice generosity. Because see, the, the, the thing about America is we're told, our culture tells us just to run the rat race and the 
and the more money we get, the faster we can run the rat race, you know, and we just accelerate it. My friend Pat Morley describes the rat race this way. We spend money we can't spare on stuff we don't need to impress people who don't care. And have you ever done that? And, and then he points out that what happens if you win the rat race? You're still a rat, so it's not really <laughs> making progress. Uh, but there's an option to get off of that race, to make a choice to live differently. And, and I think part of that is if you make a choice to be generous in such large proportions that it actually changes your standard of living, to be generous in such a way that, that you're making a choice to, to have less than you would have had other way, otherwise, but you're making a difference in someone else's life. You know, because the essence of consumerism, like I said, is to spend money not to meet, you know, the good thing about money is when you can buy food or you can buy a house, you can buy clothes so, to wear and stuff like that. But when, when you're beyond that and you're spending money to, to, make your, to try to make yourself happy, to try to make yourself feel secure, to try to make yourself feel like you're significant, that's when you start reaching the point of diminishing returns and it just doesn't work anymore. And uh, you know, money, money is great for buying the things we need, but it's not great for making us psychologically and emotionally whole. It just can't accomplish that. And, uh, but one of the things I think that can, that can, that we can do with money, one of the opportunities is to practice radical generosity. So I was driving with JJ. Some of you guys know JJ. And we were driving, dri we stopped at a stop site in, in Jersey City. And this car, this awesome car pulled up next to us. And, uh, and you know, we're all guys, so we all like cars. And so we were admiring this, 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 uh, this souped up sports car that was next to us. And JJ, who's a college student, said to me, so Pastor Mark, if you had the money, would you buy that car? And I said, well, I, I like that car, but, but I, I said to him, you know, if I had the money, the, for the amount of money that was spent on that car, you could put a kid through college for four years. And uh, what do you think would make me happier? driving around in this ridiculous car that everyone stares at, or knowing that you've put a kid through college who maybe couldn't have gone otherwise. What's going to make you happier? What's going to be more satisfying to your life? And that's the opportunity of generosity. One of the reasons God does bless us, I think, is so that, you know, Paul says in another place, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And I, I think one of, the, one of the ways that we show God and we show ourselves that money doesn't control us is when we're willing to give it away in large portions to other people to say, I'm going to take a step back on what my standard of living might have been so that I can bless someone else who is in need. So we take control of our money, one of the ways I think the main way you prove that you have control of your money is if you're willing to be generous with you. The gospel is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and that Jesus who was rich became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. There's a kind of rich that money can't buy. 
because it was bought by the sacrifice of Christ. And our challenge is to believe in him and to trust in him. You know, every time you buy something, it's kind of an act of faith, right? You, you go, go to the store, you save up your money, and, and you, go, or you go online, and, and you click buy it now, and you're like, okay, when I get this, then I'm going to be happy. When I get these clothes, then I'm going to look good, you know? When I get this, this, computer, th this new iPhone, then I'm going to be able to communicate. And then what happens, usually, you, you, an act of faith moves you to spend that money, then you get the thing, you get the clothes, and you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm still me, oh well. <laughs> or uh, or you, you get the phone and I'm, you say, I'm still not getting calls from anyone I actually want to talk to. And no matter how, how much stuff we get, it really doesn't change us. But there's a different kind of faith that can help us that, and really that won't be disappointed. I want to read a, a testimony by a guy named Randy Neighbor. Some of you might know his name. Uh, he grew up in the projects in Newark back when the projects were tough, back in the 60s and 70s. And what happened is he was saved through a punky little church like ours. He just started going there. The pastor took an interest in him, and, and, and it, it sort of got, got his life on the right track. And then when he got to his senior year, some benefactor went to his pastor and said, I want to put a kid through college. Can you recommend anybody? So he recommended this guy, Randy, little Randy, to, uh, to, to, to receive this uh, this bequest of a, essentially a four-year college uh, scholarship. And he, he ended up attending Covenant College down in Chattanooga. And he became, Randy Neighbors has risen to become one, one of the real leaders and inspirations in, in our denomination, in my group, on the whole issues of social justice and racial recognition, racial reconciliation based on his experience. And uh, th this is what he writes. He says, I know what it's like to feel ashamed by poverty. I know what it's like to feel frustrated and hopeless in the face of having no money, no food, and no way to change my circumstance. I know what it's like to have to wear clothes and shoes that are cheap, that rip apart at the most inopportune moments. I know what it's like to want to do things and go places, but you just can't because there isn't any money. I know what it's like to have a TV but then watch commercials where people have cars and washing machines and refrigerators full of food and just be reminded that we don't have those things. But I also know what it's like to come to believe and have faith and to know that God has become my father, my father in heaven, and to be absolutely sure when my faith is not wavering that he will take care of me. I don't want to give you the impression that living by faith is something I learned once and never had to relearn. Even though God's mercies come through for me time and again, the lesson of faith is one I must learn again and again. See, the lesson of faith, the reality of contentment is not natural, it's supernatural. It's something that God gives us and meets us regardless of where we are and when he shows us and he assures us that he is going to take care of us. Because really contentment at its essence, I believe, in this world comes from hope. We're, we're driven by hope when we think that buying stuff 
is going to make us happy. You know, I hope that this new outfit is going to make me happy. I hope that this new car is going to make me happy. I hope that this new neighborhood that I'm moving into is going to make me happy. It's, all, it's always, every purchase you make is an exercise of hope, right? Especially a major purchase. You're believing that this product is, is really going to uh, make a difference in your life. And then we end up with buyer's remorse because the spiritual hunger of your heart, the deep desire you have for a, a real foundation for identity and for security and for significance is not solved by that purchase. The Bible says and the Bible teaches us that when we find ourselves in a place where nothing that this world has can satisfy us, when we find ourselves in a place where, where nothing that money can buy can satisfy us, maybe that should point us to the fact that we're made for another world. Maybe that should point us to a fact that we're made to find our satisfaction in something else. And Jesus himself said that, that he's gone to prepare a place for us. He says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. He says, I'm going to set you in a neighborhood where the streets are paved with gold. And that's where you belong, and that's what he's preparing for us. And if you're wondering why you can't be satisfied where you are, you're wondering why you can't be satisfied with what you've got, it's because he designed you for glory, and right now we're just waiting for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the promise of Christ. I thank you for the generosity of Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that us through his poverty might know true riches, and I thank you for the hope that we have. And I pray that, especially for those who are discouraged, who are struggling, who are just hustling to try to make ends meet today, that you would give them hope. Give them hope that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Make that real, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.